Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past into current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. Yep. And you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, which are all at From Skirts to Scrubs. We also have a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more at FromSkirtsToScrubs.com. Yeah. And you can also subscribe to us and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts and Spotify is a great place to do that. So welcome back for a new episode. Today, we have a fun little episode for you guys, different than usual. We actually have a guest on our episode today. So me and Alicia sat down for a little bit and spoke with Dr. Dee Fenner. She is the current chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Michigan Medicine. She is a urogynecologist and a pioneer in her field. She is actually the past president of the American Urogynologic Society in the Association of Professors of OB-GYN, and she was key in obtaining the official recognition of Female Public Reconstructive Surgery Fellowship to be recognized. And we were very excited to sit down with her. We actually wanted to, you know, base our episode off of an earlier episode um, that we had recorded a long, long time ago, it feels like. But episode six, if you... six! (laughs) I know. If you um, remember, it was our episode that we recorded when we actually first started medical school, where we explored the history of women as medical students. And in that episode, we took a closer look at the trend of how women were starting to become more of the majority as they're in medical school classes. And so with this episode, we were hoping to get some insights from Dr. Fenner, who was a trainee um, in a different era of medicine when there were far fewer women and get a better understanding of her experience in her early training and then also discuss with her how her career has evolved and how she became involved with leadership and higher level positions within the field of OB-GYN, but then also within the larger field of medicine as a whole. And so we're very excited to share this episode with you. We wanna thank Dr. Fenner for taking the time to meet with us and yeah, Let's just get into it. Let's jump into it, shall we? Welcome, everyone. Um, It's so great to be back for another episode today. And we are very excited and honored to be here today with Dr. Dee Fenner. She is the chair of Michigan Medicine's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dr. Fenner. Pleasure. Having me. So, our first question for you we are wondering, you know, why did you first enter medicine and what was medical school like for you? So, um, I obviously, uh, in a little bit different time than, than we are in now, things have certainly changed over my 30 year career. So, you know, probably like most of you, I was really good at science. I enjoyed helping people. I liked doing things with my hands. I uh, had a, a godfather who was a surgeon in a small town where I grew up in. So he had a big influence on my life. So all those things together um, was why I chose to go into medicine. 
I actually originally started thinking I was going to get a PhD in pharmacology and found being in the laboratory sort of not my cup of tea, if you will, uh, though I like the science that I was uh, more of a people person. So I wanted to apply that to medicine. My class had 20% uh, women which uh, my class was a little over 100. So it was, I think there are about 25 of us in a class of around 130 at the time. So certainly very different from the demographics that we see today. It was still sort of a novel, and I will say not completely accepted that uh, women were in medical school. There was certainly some of uh, the professors or the sentiment that was felt, why are these women uh, taking these spots men who perhaps whether they're more deserving or they need to support their families or just that these women were not going to contribute, um, et cetera. Many myths, if you will, that were uh, propagated during the day as to why um, a medicine should stay predominantly male dominant. So, um, yeah, it was a different time. And uh, as more of a pioneer, I would say. And uh, so uh, fortunate to see that um, many of those struggles and hopefully most of those myths uh, don't continue. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially since, you know, medical schools are mostly 50% women now. Um, but you mentioned that your, I think you said your godfather, someone was a role model for you. We were wondering, um, what it was like to have like mentorship as a student. And also if you had any female role models um, through your training that you really looked up to, especially um, like you said, there weren't many women in medicine. So what was that like for you? Yeah, um, there weren't many female faculty either at the time, of course. Um, you know, there was one a female pathologist who was really a champion for the women medical school students where I was uh, attended. There were mostly pediatricians and realistically only a few obstetrician gynecologists. There, it was uh, still very predominantly male-oriented uh, uh, in terms of uh, faculty. There were no female chairs. Um, I did not know any females. There were no female surgeons. And um, so for me, I was uh, very much interested in surgery. And so the uh, OBGYN was a pathway to become a surgeon. And um, while I, obstetrics is fabulous, and I did that for several years, uh, I specialized in urogynecology, which is primarily one of the subspecialties. So um, there weren't many role models per se. You found allies and support in some men, but there was probably a much, much more peer, I will say, mentorship and um, collaborative uh, uh, support for each other as uh, female uh, medical students. I think that, you know, we had an AMWA chapter and there were the, you know, I will say primarily pediatricians that were women, a few internists, uh, but uh, who, uh, you know, were supportive and certainly tried to be uh, strong allies and support. But uh, 
in general, you know, I, I look back, I think my letters of recommendation all came from men. There weren't, uh, there weren't women to in leadership positions in any departments who would write letters of recommendation. Um, and so it was a very different time. I ended up in OBGYN again. I loved surgery, but also um, I was very much wanting to protect and support women. And seeing that um, some of the care or some of the way women were treated or talked about was very offensive to me. And so I uh, really, part of my, uh, you know, feminist nature wanted to be sure that women were treated better, cared for, respected. And uh, so that was also a motivating factor to go into OBGYN. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was interesting. I was just telling Alicia that a lot at the hospital that I've done my rotations at, a lot of the OBs, the older ones are still men. And a lot of the female surgeons I've worked with were actually through my surgery rotation. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you like wanted to be a surgeon, went into OB to do it. Um, I know it, I rotated at in Detroit. So some of them, there's some like pioneers in female surgery there as well. Based off of what you said, I was just wondering if you happen to remember any of the comments or any of the commentary that was made about female patients that were frustrating for you. Because I guess I had never really thought about the patients being, of course, patients need advocating for, but I guess that was not where my head was going. I will say that the part there was uh, staffed by a lot of former military physicians. Just that's and so it was just kind of a little unique. I say my experience, I did my residency at Michigan was very, very, very different. And I and that's where I found my lifelong mentors and colleagues and who supported and respected both their patients and all of their residents, whether whatever uh, gender they were. And um, it was a very different world. But that was one of the reasons why I came to Michigan. So even in the 80s, um, it was known as a place that supported women um, in the OBGYN department. So some of those comments, though, there was would be a lot of comments around um, the physical appearance. So if the woman was obese, or if she wasn't you know, as attractive, perhaps, in their eyes, um, there would be frequent comments about that. And, um, you know, so um, not universally, but there was just not the respect that one would want to see. And so, and there was still, it was a patronizing, if you will, and not letting women have the voice that they uh, deserve. And I think we see today and, and hopefully their women's ability to make decisions about their bodies and their reproductive health uh, that I'm, we've seen advance in the last 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like advocacy is actually a huge part of why you decided to go into OB-GYN. Um, we are both curious, actually. So it sounds like, you know, advocacy and finding a pathway to surgery are some of your reasons why OB and like OB-GYN. How did you decide to do a fellowship in Eurogyne going from there? Yeah. So at the time, there really wasn't Eurogyne. Um, I'm happy to say that was one of probably my major 
proudest accomplishments that I helped champion and through uh, being head of the American Board of OBGYN and American Board of Urology make that happen uh, about 20 years ago. So not quite 15, we finally got it through. But um, I think that, uh, so I wanted to do the surgical part and I did, there weren't really fellowships. There were just a few fellowships. They were more like um, extra apprenticeship year in pelvic surgery. So there was some research component. I did my fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, which uh, was a very good experience. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I realized that I wanted to have that distinction. And just as the field was just really coming up to itself or beginning to be recognized as a subspecialty in the mid 90s. And so um, that was a, a choice that I. Very interesting. I know Alicia and I both really enjoyed Eurogyne when we had our OB um, clerkships. So um, that's really interesting of how you like help the field grow, I guess. Um, another question we had is kind of like what led you into academic medicine and pursuing leadership in medicine? Um, you um, you talked about how there wasn't many like OBs in leadership positions when you were a student and in training and there were definitely no chairs. So like what was your path um, to that route you went, when you went down? You know, I think when I finished fellowship, um, trying to decide what to do, um, it wasn't, a, you know, I think a very exciting time that Eurogyne was just becoming its own subspecialty. And um, to do, to go into private practice, at least, and be able to do just uh, that field wasn't really commonplace at the time. Now you certainly fortunately be able to have that as an option. So to continue to pursue that as well as to be able to do, you know, research and to advance the field, Obviously, you needed to stay in academic medicine. And so um, I think that, you know, I, you know, I don't know, our, you know, that debate are, you know, are leaders, you know, is, are you, do you learn to be a leader? Uh, are you born to be a leader? I think there's a, certainly a strong combination. I think that you need to be prepared and you need to uh, have training and you need to have heart. Because if you're going to be a leader, you really need to put others before yourself. That has to be a focus of uh, of whatever team that you're trying to lead. I, um, you know, I think I started out primarily as in your, besides the Eurogyne as a medical educator, and that was important for surgical education. And so sometimes you get on a committee and then you do a good job. And so then you become a chair of a committee or you become the head of a clerkship and you do a good job. And so then you get promoted before you know it, you're in line to lead an organization or you're coming up for positions and um, you have to decide if you like that. Are you enjoying it? Again, do you derive pleasure? from uh, having those responsibilities, from making those hard decisions, uh, from seeing your team or your organization or your department thrive. So if you do, then you also need to say, do outside things, do courses or, or participate in some other learning activities so that prepare you to be a better leader or learn how to be a good leader. So that all kind of came together for me. and. Um, 
think a lot of my leadership I gained from organizations like being president of AUGS, American Neuroguidance Society, being president of APCO, the Association of Professors of College and Obstetrics, which is our education group. And then, you know, transferring things I learned there as well as moving up as a division vector and then finally up to the chair. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just curious if there were other women chairs at the time of you kind of coming into that position. So I became a chair about five and a half years ago. And at that time, there were uh, two other female chairs. And so now I think there's six of us. So we have, you know, so the number in Michigan has grown. You know, I remember when uh, Jennifer Nebel, who became the first female chair in uh, sort of the late 1980s. I know you guys were probably weren't born yet, but at the University of Iowa, she came there from Johns Hopkins and she was a maternal fetal medicine person. And uh, that was a huge that she was really the first female chair at a well-respected, large academic uh, health system. And then, you know, it's been a very slow uh, pathway from there. You know, it's been 30 years, uh, but now we certainly see that um, when you go to the chairs and OBGYN uh, course that uh, there's probably at least 50-50, if not or like 60-40 female chairs to males now. So there's uh, it has, it's, it's more reflective of um, the demographics in OBGYN. Yeah, it's like a little inspirational in a way too. I know in the podcast, we've talked about how women's health used to be like one, you know, really um, women providers back a couple hundred years ago through like midwives and different, um, different medical professions that don't exist anymore. And then when OB-GYN came about, it was really a field of men and they kind of pushed women out in the beginning. And um, so it's interesting to see like it all come back around and um, women taking leadership positions again. It's exciting. And then I also was going to say in terms of your leadership, um, journey, it really just sounds like you followed your passions kind of, and just kept doing what you really enjoyed and cared about. And that's kind of what led you to your leadership positions. And um, I think that's cool because especially from the start of med school to now, even both Alicia and I um, think that we had different interests and we just kept doing like what we enjoy doing. And now we look back and we're like, wow, we never thought this would be like the path we would take at the beginning of our medical career, but we just did what we enjoy doing. Um, and now we're like at this new place with new interests in medicine that we never thought we'd had. So that's interesting. That that's kind of what led you, have you to too. follow your passion. Yeah. yeah, you have to follow your passion and hopefully opportunities open up and you're ready. And, um, you know, once you make a decision, you got to move forward. Can't no regrets. Can't look yeah. back. Yes, absolutely. We were wondering, just based on your experience and um, career, what advice you have for women entering like the medical field, but more specifically within the field of OB. Like if you want to take on more leadership positions, we kind of like chatted about it, but if you had like a pearl for our listeners, if you have any advice. You know, do follow your passion. You'll figure out, yeah, you know, sometimes you want to do everything. And uh I encourage you can do everything, but you really can't do it all. 
And so I think sometimes it's 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 a hard, but really take the time to think of what prioritize and make sure for your professional career as well as your personal goals that you that you know and try to figure out what's going to make you the happiest. And so I I think that um, you know my generation we sacrificed a lot, and um, there'll be some sacrifice. You guys are very resilient. You've you've powered through a lot already, but you know, don't delay your gratification and don't delay um, everything for your careers. And so, uh, you know, life throws you curveballs. Things come along, and you're not going to follow a straight path. At the same time, you know, you really do need to keep a focus on you know when are you the happiest. Figure that out. And so, and do what you want to do, certainly not what someone else thinks you should do, or then you're quite capable of doing doesn't mean you have to do it. So I think my advice is, is, you know, I think leadership provides, um, you know, an added dimension. You can have a bigger influence. You can make um, a bigger impact on uh, women's health. At the same time, you know, the, those my faculty up at night delivering babies are the heroes, right? And working uh, 24-7. So uh, we can never lose track of that. So I think, you know, there's, you know, you put the patients first, but sometimes you have to put yourself first and don't be afraid of that. Um, be prepared if you think you want to be a leader. I will say, you know, just because you want to be a leader, you have that's, uh, you may got to make sure you're ready for that position. There's lots of opportunities to learn leadership, to model your leadership, think about who you want to emulate and why, and, uh, you know, be prepared when that position comes along. Um, I think that it's a challenge right now. I think it's a really hard time in medicine. I think it's we're coming out of the uh, pandemic with a, a lot of uh, Pressure. There's a lot of economic pressure on healthcare systems. There are uh, a lot of uh, uh, standardization, which is the loss of autonomy and the ability to uh, sort of look at your work-life balance or to look at, at uh, makes it really difficult. So I do think that moving forward, it is a challenge. I think that it's going to be. Um, I think that's it's a. Uh, you know, is the system, we have to make a system and hopefully your generation will come and help us make a system that is, I think, more supportive of women and more supportive of, I say, diversity and not necessarily meaning in uh, how we look or who you pray or who you love, but diversity in uh, part-time work, diversity and mm. how our schedules go and diversity and being able to um, have a more complex life and still be in medicine. And I don't think that, I think right now we're kind of at a crossroads there. And I think that successful systems will realize that and will. Um, and so I I think the leaders in, med in medicine need to, to focus on that. And so as you, I think as you move forward and look and think about your next steps to think about that as well. Yeah, I think that's very applicable and great advice. That's something I talk about a lot with my friends and such of how we want to like 
you know, shape our life as physicians, but also as people outside of medicine, like how those two things go together is really important to us. One last question, kind of like to wrap up our conversation, looking back at your career, is there anything you would have done differently? And then also like what's been your favorite part so far? I probably put my career over some personal things I might have done different. So I may have uh, done a few things differently there. But career wise, I, you know, when I, when I see my faculty succeed and be successful, when I see the students grow and become residents and then faculty or move on and be successful, making you know, research discoveries or really impacting the healthcare of women in a region or becoming tomorrow's leaders. Those are those things that I'm most proud of. That's really my satisfaction. I'm very proud of the what Eurogyne has become and the field that it has grown to be and the, the part that I was able to play in that. But um, I think really the, uh, you, you know, my joy comes from seeing um, those that I've either, I say, taught or had on uh, my faculty or mentored in other departments be successful. That's that's what is um, will be my legacy. So very happy for that. Wow. Uh, well, we appreciate you. We love you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with Absolutely. us today. Thank you so much. You're an incredible role model. And we we've gotten so much out of speaking with you. So we know that everyone at home will also feel the same. Good luck, you guys. Take care. Thank you. All right. So if you enjoyed that episode and enjoyed hearing Dr. Fenner's amazing insights, you should subscribe to our podcast. We're available on all the podcasting apps that you could possibly think of. And leave us a rating and review. And Apple Podcasts is the best place for that. But you can also leave us a five-star rating on Spotify. Yeah. And you can also follow us on any of our social media. It's all linked in the episode bio. You can also check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, merch, all that stuff at FromScriptToScrubs.com. And lastly, here is to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today, like Dr. Fenner. May we do the same for those who come after us. All right, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Bye.